listening to the unofficial NAFO podcast with our best brain damaged dogs and friends. Now please welcome your host, Matt, the TWAFO CEO, and Joe Place. So I'm just going to say this is series three, episode one, because I've lost track as well. And also, tragically, we had about two, three episodes recorded, which have been lost completely to history. We don't know where they are and they will never properly show up. So, um, you know, maybe it'll be like some Doctor Who episode that one day turns up in some archive or probably not, to be honest with you. Um, But yeah, so today we are we are back. And today it is me, it is Matt, and we also have a guest with us from the start, uh, Judas Everett, who, well, okay, you can introduce yourself, Judas, and then Matt, I suppose, rather than me do the summary of who you are as a human. Uh-huh. So I should I should just come in and say who I am as a human, yeah? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, it's, um, it's a little bit of a... Um... A little bit of a deep question to that, but uh, basically I've always been interested in Eastern Europe, uh, starting from my undergraduate studies in, in Aberystwyth, and then I, I did my master's in Poland, in Wrocław, international relations as well, and then I did my PhD in uh, post-communist transitions in, in Moscow, so I've been around uh, the area for a while. I lived in Ukraine. Uh, I was in Ukraine at the start of the war. And uh, yeah, I guess that's sort of who I am as a human, somebody who spends all of their time in Eastern Europe thinking about Eastern Europe. And, uh, you know, it's amazing I'm not grey yet, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah, I think that was pretty sufficient in a summary. Matt, Mm -hmm. are you here? Who are you? (laughs) Uh, I'm just a random guy on Twitter that got interested in in helping Ukraine. Um, So... How many podcasts have we done now? Third season. We've done a lot. And I started getting interested in this side of things when I set up my pinned pinned tweet. Um, and there's all sorts of experts and people on there who either replied or completely ignored me. And some of those people turned up in the podcast. Um, we're still waiting to get a few more in. And yeah, I'm still going strong, just like Ukraine. Yeah, since the very start, it's been, we've got some great guests lined up. And it's true. It's just that, and I say this all the time, it's just getting time when everyone can mm. get together. It's 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 a challenge. And, you know, we don't have money. So, yeah, that's mm. the thing. I think that's or, Yeah, or, or Russian um, uh, Secret Service finding uh, guests for us and organising it. To, yeah, we're not, when a you woman, see these... we're not a woman from New Jersey who sells aquariums like that. Yeah, that's it, yeah. 
or um, or or an ex Labour MP who mis mysteriously ends up working for Iranian TV, and then suddenly gets all these Russian guests on his uh, TV channel on YouTube. So so we've been yeah we've been gone a while uh, for various reasons really behind the scenes nothing nothing too dramatic it's just time constraint i've been very busy with my phd and life and yeah we've just all had other other priorities but you know we're back now um you know we 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 come out quicker than between grand theft auto trailers are released which you know it's totally topical because it happened yesterday so you know it's just all something I, I thought of um yeah cool so i've kind of i've generally forgotten how to do this smoothly and how to talk like a human but this will be fine <laughs> i'm sure we'll edit we'll edit where i don't say um every few seconds um yeah i don't know is there anything you want to add matt before we get on to news i'm just pleased to be um pleased that we're still doing it i, yeah. I love i love talking to people and um i i'll just keep talking and talking until people tell me to shut up. So. Yeah, well, that, that's also how Judas operates in life. And he'll continue after being told to shut up. So. Yeah, yeah, you have to tell me a couple of times. So. <laughs> yeah, so cool. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Right. So a lot's happened since we last recorded, which was, I think, in August, maybe September. Uh, and yeah, I guess we should go in a bit of chronological order. I don't think we touched on, or if we did, this is in one of the lost files of the think tank. Um, everything that happened in Nagorno-Karabakh, that was a pretty big event, which seems that everyone's already forgotten about, which is weird. Um, yeah, it was just, just to sort of recap, you know, this was sort of the, well, I, I don't know if it'd be right to say the end, but it was definitely one of the latest events uh, in a very long-standing war that's gone back since well, we could say World War One period, the uh, Russian Revolution period, but even before that, really. Um, but now, basically, Azerbaijan has taken the Artsakh, Nagorno-Karabakh uh, enclave, and nearly all Armenians left, um, sort of, to escape, I think it's quite fair to say, an impl imp implied bad time, let's say, uh, in a very British way. Um, and yeah, but I think what's most interesting was that, you know, Russia's made, was sort of had those bases there as a sort of peacekeeping force and they just weren't there or doing anything from what I understand. Yeah. And a lot of people said it was sort of like a show, a show of the weakening of Russia on its, it's not unable to help its supposed allies. And then Armenia came out and said, we shouldn't have been close with Russia. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was quite chaotic, really. Um, and but now again, it seems to have disappeared. Uh, it happened a few months ago, admittedly, but still, uh, I think there were, it was a quite a bigger event that just sort of fizzled away. I don't know what other people's thoughts on that were. Or well, Judas, I know you know a bit about this topic. Um, I think that it kind of represented from the from the point of view of understanding Russia in the region. It represented them kind of shifting away from what they were doing in the 90s and the early 2000s and positioning themselves as kind of the peacekeeping force of the region and, you know, the, the brokers of power and whatnot. The fact that they sort of surrendered that is probably going to be very damaging for them in the long term. But um, the reality of, 
of of countries in this region is there's not a there's not an alternative really. I mean, some of the stand countries look towards Turkey or or China, but is that really is that really going to be better for them? Mm, I mean, they're between a rock and a hard place, really, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, because that's the thing. Azerbaijan were generally close to Turkey and Israel, whereas Armenia was obviously closer with Russia. Um, it just shows how complicated the Caucasian region is. <laughs> uh, you know, we saw these protests where people would have American flags next to, like, but then also there'd be Iranian flags because they back Armenia. It's it's just a, a mess, really. <laughs> so for a normal person to look at this and go, how can I understand it? You know, you think studying Ukraine, studying Russia is complicated. It's like, oh boy, mm-hmm. no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think I think it's complicated for the people there as well, and you know that they've ended up in this sort of you know de facto alliance with uh, with Russia, and and it was formalized, you know, to to a certain extent. Obviously, not for the disputed regions, but but a formalized alliance. But really, it came because they didn't think they had any any alternatives, and that's why it came around. So I feel like it's complicated for us and it's difficult for us, but for the guys there, it's not much better, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely worse when it's, you know, if you feel you have to ally with Russia to defend yourself from the Armenian point of view or from the Azerbaijani point of view where you need to be close to Turkey to be strong against Russia, I suppose would be their perspective, right? So I just think it was, I, I, I wonder if this would have happened had Russia not, obviously messed up more in Ukraine? Do you think Azerbaijan would have taken that opportunity? Or do you think well, it was I, a long way coming? I, I, mean, I mean, it's a difficult one, isn't it? But I, I think that the, the likelihood of, of Russia really putting kind of, I, I know a lot of things we've seen in the last couple of years suggest that they don't really value Russian lives very much. But, but the idea that they're going to risk them for, you know, disputed land, for the Armenians, I'm not really sure that they would they would have you know come in in a strong way anyway, but um, it, it didn't look good for them in the context, you know. Uh, while you're trying to project this image of military might, this kind of contradicted it, didn't it? Really, when when you had Russian soldiers sitting in their base being told to leave yeah. uh, by Azerbaijan, that's is it's not good for PR or whatever. But uh, I, I'm honestly not sure that they were ever the ally that uh, Armenia hoped they might have been. Mm-hmm. I think had there been an attack on Armenia proper, so to speak, as they conceptualize it, because if they'd come in strongly against Azerbaijan, they would upset a lot of people in the region as well. Russia was trying to consider their position in the region over their kind of obligations to Armenia, really. And it, it was just real politic, I think, and, and, and that was it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I do think the discourse was interesting because, um, you know, some people were pointing out like, oh, this is legally Azerbaijan's land and they have the right to their claim. Um, I, I, you know, I spoke to some Ukrainians who were very much like that, seeing it as a, similar to taking back Crimea. But then a lot of people are like, this is also, you know, pretty genocidal. I, I, I found it very frustrating. People felt like they had to pick a side. I didn't like that, to be honest with you. I think it was a very complicated and horrible situation for almost everyone, really. Um, yeah. and, and the people in, in the region, especially. I, I remember when I started getting involved and getting interested in Ukraine, I remember wading in with my size 11s into a discussion going, 
what you what you're all on about um azerbaijan started donating stuff to ukraine so i just went yeah that makes them that makes them the good guys armenia is um in the csdo so that means they're russian um i didn't really know very much um but it, it, it's definitely a very muddied area isn't it and yeah as with everything that russia gets involved in you're not quite sure what to <laughs> what to believe to be honest um so um if i remember correctly they didn't really want to join the csto but they didn't have any choice if i remember correctly is that right yeah i, th I think it was just you know marriage of convenience wasn't it they, they had nowhere else to turn and yeah i think you're right it's, it's really interesting about what point of view people took on it because i saw some people saying exactly what you said azerbaijan and they did you know they're the they're the good guys sort of uh, quote marks, and then other people saying, uh, Armenia is the democracy, therefore they're the good guys. And I was like, you know, this is this is uh, pretty tricky. And I could see people would find an angle for what they, you know, were inclined to believe. But it's, it's a very complicated region with, well, centuries of complicated history and, and some very strong feelings yeah. from from the people there. So... Just read through the Wikipedia of like Nagorno Karabakh, and it's just it's a long, depressing, dark read. That's just the Wikipedia, mm -hmm. and it's very complicated. It's always well, these people showed up and committed genocide, and these people showed up and committed genocide. Oh, for God's sake, it just goes on. Yeah, speaking of complicated wars, <laughs> um, um, obviously, the other one which I think has quite big ramifications for. I think a lot of the sense of malaise, malaise in the world right now, uh, I think some of the issues going on in American politics, uh, discourse on the internet, the state of the internet, to be honest with you, you know, I think we, ha we can't ignore, I don't want to talk too much about it, because everyone's talking a lot about it, but you know, we have to talk about Israel Hamas, really, I think if we didn't mention it, it would be weird. Uh, for posterity, this is the 6th of December. So Everything I or anyone says here should be conceptualized with this. I don't know what will happen tomorrow, next week, next month, whenever you listen. So um, right now, the situation is, I'm not even sure. Some hostages have been released. There are reports about how a lot of them are mistreated. Uh, obviously, we had the, the, the Hamas attack back on the 7th of October, which was pretty horrific. Uh, Israel has done various retaliations. The, the, there's been... It's been quite chaotic in Gaza, both on the ground with troops dealing with militants, civilian uh, like buildings being bombed, and the internet has gone mad with just horrific discourse, I would say, as well. Um, I don't want to get into a whole thing of who, who is right and what not, I'm, but I am interested to know, discuss, like, you know, what is the impact on Ukraine and things like that in relation to this war? <laughs> well, it's, it's okay. Really, okay, it's a it's a very big question. Again, I think it's more interesting to to look at it and and try to calculate what Russia thinks they're going to gain from this. Because, yeah. um, I mean, initially uh, the creation of Israel that was backed by the Soviet Union, uh, sort of you know a, a a good thing because it would disrupt matters, and then they saw it in that light, and then later they shifted. To supporting the Arab states, right? Yep. So they they have been fairly fluid on this. 
But I think what a lot of people don't realize about, about Israel itself is, is how, well, let's say Russian-speaking it is, because so many Jews left at the end of the Soviet Union and moved from Ukraine and Russia and other post-Soviet states to, to Israel. And, and there's always been a pretty uh, close relationship um, since 91 between, between these countries, right? Yep. So for Russia to change their tune to the extent that they have, I think that's very interesting. Um, yeah, because you you've got like propaganda videos, am I right, which were very, and just general news reports, which have been completely pro-Palestine, you know, uncritically not mentioning Hamas really much to the negative light. And, and I thought, because, yeah, they've always sort of played their cards quite close and they've had, and, you know, um, Netanyahu sort of had quite a positive relationship with Putin, right? That's not too far to say. No, no, absolutely. And I, I think they had they had a lot of similarities in sort of how they saw the world and how they saw the role of of military power and power in general as being, you know, paramount basically so they aligned on some stuff naturally and they aligned on some stuff through interest and to see putin risking that potentially just throwing that away i mean that says a lot i think whether or not it's gonna work whether or not that's gonna have a big impact on, on ukraine i don't know but i think that the russians must believe that it will to be going down this path right yeah, because my perception is that, well, I mean, okay, Hamas have visited Russia, right? That's that that mm -hmm. did happen. Um, they clearly have a relationship. Um, to what extent is hard to say. You know, is it more of a hey, you should launch this attack on this day, or is it hey, we'll give you some weapons? I, I don't know. I don't feel confident to speculate too closely. But they, but they clearly have a positive relationship. That's that's fair to say. Um, yeah. But I think what is odd here is I think what it is how it is possibly helping is because well first of all it shifts focus to an extent it creates a sense of instability um, you know further for the West and its allies I suppose you could say and now also you know America's talking about arms and that might derail uh, aid for America I suppose because obviously America is a huge donor to Israel normally. And now you've got two wars to be sending weapons to, and that might make it a little bit more complicated. It fixed more of a cultural war into the discourse of America. I wonder. I don't know if that. Yeah, I, I, I feel that probably is something they might be aware of and planning, or maybe it's a happy coincidence. Because sometimes I don't know how much I can trust Russia's competence. You know, it's a, you know something does align for them. I'm like, <laughs> is that just luck for them? I don't know. But... Yeah, I, 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 I would, I would view it as luck. Yeah, essentially, and them trying to take advantage of a situation which developed. I don't think that Russia were particularly involved with planning it or kind of deciding what happened. And if they were, I think that the Western security forces would have known about it much like they did with the 2022 invasion, right? So, mm. that their lines of communication. I, I mean, Kadyrov was just using WhatsApp. I mean, that's insane, right? I think that we would have probably, if Russia had been involved, it would have been more 
visible to Western security forces, and they would have been able to probably identify that. However, once it happens, you know, I, d I don't even know that Russia has to do very much because it seems like the US particularly, and, and you already mentioned it, is sort of, I don't want to say it's shifting its focus, but they're having their internal argument in a way that they didn't about Ukraine. It was at the beginning of the war, it was almost universal in, in, in the US. I mean, a few weirdos aside, and it's always very dangerous to, you know, focus on a few weirdos. Besides those few weirdos, most Western societies were pretty much unanimous in supporting Ukraine because it was a clear war of aggression and it goes against, you know, the ethical viewpoint that most people have. Whereas the situation in Israel is, is very complicated and has been complicated, you know, since the end of the Ottoman Empire and, and before even, but uh, since, since Britain's been involved and, and partitions and, and, and whatnot, yeah, it, it's complicated and it causes more, more debate. And I think the internal debate inside Western societies has been more rigorous and, and much, much more time-consuming than anything connected with Ukraine, and that's a distraction. I, I don't believe that the US doesn't have the, the weapons to, to supply both, though. I think some people might take advantage of it and try to claim that, but, but I, I don't buy that for a second. Yeah, I think that's true. When you look at the military, the amount of military gear they have is, and the budget, it's still, it's insane. Yeah. yeah. You, yeah. you just need to look at what got left behind in Afghanistan and they didn't even notice it, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, they went, oh, we're leaving now. And everyone else was, hang on a minute, what about all these helicopters and fighters? And they just went, oh, yeah, whatever, we'll just blow them up or leave them behind, we don't care. And then they left. And yeah. so when all these people go, oh, my God, we can't afford to do uh, support Ukraine. And it's like, you left. You left so much stuff in Afghanistan and Iraq. And you didn't even notice it. So come on, you know, don't yeah, stop yeah. lying because it's a lie, basically. Yeah. Um, it's the weirdos are just taking advantage of it. Um, and I'll, 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 um, Kate, I'll, I'll, um, record an interest in this because, um, I am my grandparent, my grandmother and my mother are Jewish. Um, mm -hmm. and we have friends in Israel and, uh, I, I know quite a, a few people as well. And, it was quite interesting seeing um, <clears throat> an interview with a, a senior member of Likud on Russia Today. I don't know if you guys saw the clip. And he was asked, oh, so um, what do you guys think about um, the support you're receiving from Russia? And he just went, we'll never forget what you've done. When we've, when we've defeated Hamas, we're going to come for you. Um, we'll make sure that Ukraine never loses and you're finished. We'll, we'll come for you next. Um, because of what you've done, um, so in the in the politics in Israel, Russia has just gone. They they're on a par with Iran now, with most people now, um, especially since they started buying the drones from there and swapping technology. So I honestly I can't understand why what Putin is. Well, I can because he needed stuff from Iran for Ukraine, um, but he's burnt his bridges. Basically, that's the end of it. As mm -hmm. from from what I from what I can hear, um, I don't. I still don't think we've fully understood the consequences of him inviting Hamas and people to come and talk to him as well. So yeah, um, he's not very popular anymore. It's going to be interesting, and you can see from the, all the trolls as well. 
um, where the Russian backing has gone. Uh, they switched over immediately, didn't they? <laughs> uh, all the people who were um, moaning about Ukraine just switched overnight, um, which was yeah uh, fairly obvious. It was fairly obvious to me what was going on. The grifters, all the right wing grifters, especially like mm. you know people who I, I would be comfortable calling Nazis or at least close to being Nazis, defending Palestine or not just Palestine, defending Hamas is just one of the weirdest things, you know, it's, it's, I, in some ways I understand it, because yeah, uh, it's opportunism, because it's more of a hot topic, because they were pro-Russia, and now they seem to have, they see it as an anti-West thing, also combined with anti-Semitism, it's just, it, but you know, imagine if you said to someone a year, two ago, you know, some of the names of these people, uh, you know, okay, Hinkle, uh, the, the other ones, uh, these terrible human beings, basically, um, defending Hamas, defending an Arab country, Arabs and stuff like this, is just, you wouldn't believe it, right? It's just a very <laughs> strange time. Uh, well, well, to me, I, it, it's, um, it's, it's, I'm not, not surprised at all, to be honest. Okay, um, okay. Um, so, if you, if you look at where they've all sort of come from, it's um, they've, they started out on the left and then um, became um, what we would describe as um, fascist. So in America, I think they're called Red Browns. Um, and we discussed some of this with Pekka um, about LaRouche and people like that. So the weird cults, um, they've got a history of anti-Semitism and if if you look at where Hinkle came from specifically, then he started off um, with a group of people called Infrared and the CPI, um, who are sort of fascist, social, patriotic socialists. They're called Pat socks. Yeah. Um, Nazbols is another word, so national Bolsheviks. Um, but they see the Palestinians as um, anti-imperialist in the same way that they see Russia as anti-imperialist. So, um, I, 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 do you not think that you're being a bit generous here? Uh, I, I mean, um, oh no, I'm talking. I'm talking about where they. It's, it's no surprise to me where they that they ended up doing this at all. If you look at the history of their, no, their political views. People, so, people, people like Hinkle don't have don't have beliefs or views. Oh, no, I don't think they do. No, no, no. They hundred percent do. Mm -hmm. Honestly, believe, believe if you look at where they come from mm -hmm. um, before they started making money on YouTube, then they they definitely do. Um, so um, we can we can talk about his history being arrested in protest mm -hmm. um, against Nancy Pelosi and the ICE people. Um, and you can see a gradual drift away from the sort of traditional left to fascist left and then a nationalist left. Um, so where, where you start getting out on the far fringe, when we were talking about the ultra left fringes here, um, and you can't tell the difference then. So you can you stop being able to tell the difference between the ultra right and the ultra left. Um, I think though there's so, like there are some who may be true believers, but and some are just straight up. I will go where the money is, and there's probably yes, an overlap. Yeah. It's hard to distinguish though, because yeah, is, I, I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how much Hinkle believes anymore. I don't know how. No, much no, no. Yeah, absolutely. So he, he, if you look at some, um, I think Nick Fuentes put something on Twitter saying I had a chat with him, and he's the most boring person, and it's all a LARP and things like that. So. 
he's I, I guess he's in it for the money now but if you look how he started then he had views that are pretty similar to what he has now um but it's just money now so yeah maybe it was easier for people to switch if they held similar views in the past but i i think in the in the case of like the ones that got really big right they got big by willing they're willing to jump on anything and and that's what really set them apart and oh, if, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. if he was a hundred percent an israel supporter when he was 18 i think now he would be a hundred percent a hamas supporter just because he thinks it's going to get him clicks yeah so and, that's people like ian miles and things like that so yeah uh, he, absolutely he is, right? he is completely switched completely uh -huh. switched um and so yeah he was just like an lgbt friendly gamer type person and then just realized that he could make loads of money just by being controversial and um he is definitely one of those this episode we are not going to do our usual advertisement for a particular cause although you should always be donating to something which helps you quit we are going to ask you to do one of two things, maybe both. One, it is more crucial than ever that Ukraine gets the support. Contact your political representatives, keep the aid coming to Ukraine, and also just talk to your friends and family about Ukraine, the state of the war, keep yourself educated and keep other people educated because it is more crucial than ever that it remains in the public eye. The second thing, we want to grow this podcast. If you are capable, either via video editing, visual image editing, or audio editing, or perhaps some other way you think you could be useful to us, maybe even if you think you could be a guest for our show, please drop us a message on our Twitter, that's Bella's Think Tank, or send us an email, which will also be on the Twitter page. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. now in December of 2023 and over the last few months there's been a lot of discourse of course about the state the failure so-called failure of the counter-offensive um I think you know everyone can understand that it did not get the goals Ukraine was hoping for it did not take the big swathes of land that the the Kharkiv counter-offensive had or you know taking the left the right bank of Kherson and things like this and I, obviously people were disappointed Zaluzhny uh, you know came out and said that there's sort of a stalemate on the battlefield um, there's been discussion with USA's advice not really working because their advice doesn't work uh, for Ukraine and the, the, the war games don't make sense because USA is used to air support and certain resources um, and yeah and, th and then this is sort of increased to a sort of discourse online mostly from the west more than ukrainians which i think is very telling about how ukraine either has to accept a long war uh, ukraine needs to make some concessions to russia it's over ukraine has lost i don't know it can get more ridiculous some people are just saying hey the counter has failed what do we do next some people are like it's over it's all over um because you know the internet and discourse and nuanced discourse is just not a thing apparently um 
Yeah, I, I'm just sort of curious to know from, you know, from your point of view, Judas, especially, you know, mm. as as you know Russia probably more than oh. at least the average Western person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope and, so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, what are your thoughts on that and the general, on just the state of it and the discourse, let's say, like before we, uh, we talk about future yeah, steps? Well, well, I think they're two, they're two kind of, separate issues the dis- the discourse in Russia and the discourse in the west right even if we if we put uh, ukraine aside because i think that uh, ukrainians themselves have been fairly consistent throughout the entire war without getting too high or too low i think most people that i personally know have been quite realistic about it and you know i would i would also say that about um about people in positions of power in in ukraine they also have been fairly even keeled i would say so the the West is 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 experiencing an overcorrection, I think. Right, um, the the dominant narrative uh, after these things that you mentioned, um, the collapse on the Northern Front, for example, where you know Russia in complete disarray. Right, that, I don't think that's an overstatement. It it looked really like a disaster, to be honest. People naturally expected that to be repeated in the South, and I think that's normal. That's um, that's what you should expect, right? The evidence suggested that that might happen again, and it didn't happen again. Um, and people are overcorrecting because their initial expectations were, were were not correct, basically. And we often do that. We often overcorrect. It's a very human human thing to do. But uh, it strikes me as a little bit of a, a failure of the experts. You know, um, there were experts who were saying, "Look, this is going to be very dis- difficult." You know. It's not that Ukraine has no air power. It doesn't have air superiority, right? So the U.S. is used to having unchallenged air superiority. And a lot of people did say, look, you know, that isn't going to be the case this time. And, you know, trying to do combined maneuvers is difficult. And something on this scale is difficult. And there were people out there saying that, but they weren't, they weren't the, the loudest voices. And they weren't the majority. So what what we saw was a, a lot of people expecting a repeat of what happened around Kharkiv. And it, it didn't happen. And, and people overcorrect in the West, I'm talking about. But there isn't really a sense of kind of victory coming from the Russian side. It's not like they're, they're celebrating. Yes, they're pleased that the Ukrainian counteroffensive hasn't produced what it might have. But it's not like... Uh, it's a mirror image of the West, right? As disappointed or as crestfallen as as some people are in the West, it doesn't equate to that amount of uh, joy coming from the Russian side, if, if that makes any sense, right? So I think a lot of people in the West need to kind of reflect on themselves and their media and their experts and think about what it says about us, right? And And, and not necessarily what it says about the battlefield and certainly not what it says about russia yeah this is what struck me was how all of this conversation is happening in english language media in in mm-hmm. mostly from america right new york times mm-hmm. uh, atlantic who, whoever all these people and i just found it interesting because we, you know and then these articles obviously do well at the moment they get clicks so it creates this sense of doom i think for a lot of pro-ukraine supporters and yet when you talk to ukrainians as you said when you read what they actually say 
apart from a few cheeky memes from Budanov, we've generally seen, yeah, pretty realistic. It's difficult. It's going to be hard. People are going to die. People are dying. There's lots of death. Uh-huh. Um, and we, you know, we know this. Uh, you know, but they haven't got the luxury of um, this discourse. And yeah, I, I think it's just. I, I guess it is, or it is very human, and I think it's very human when you observe war from afar to get very romantic ideas, and then when they get shattered, you mm-hmm. fall into a deep despair, right? It's easier to, you know, many cynical people want very romantic, you know, wide-eyed people. It's they're sort of the polar opposite of each other just in life, and I feel that yeah, this has happened, and then these negative voices get amplified, and it is an overcorrection. You know, we've gone from the people being amplified who are like, Crimea will be taken in three days or whatever. No, I don't know what actually said that, but you know. Um, but to now it's over. It's you know, like that the, the meme, right? It's over, millions, millions must die, you know. Um I, I, yeah, I, I just think that and just the discourse has changed, but again, mostly among the West. I I, I just think that's interesting. It's telling us more about how we in the West, how Western people are and perceive the world and communicate with each other i think it just says more and our politics and our internal politics political issues uh-huh. too right yeah absolutely it's, it's an emotional reaction too isn't it yeah it's not a necessarily a rational one because uh, mm-hmm. the rational voices are like hey guys it's gonna be really difficult don't get your hopes up they don't get clicks on twitter they're not getting the retweets <laughs> they're not getting put in the uh, new york times they're writing some obscure like Substack or some weird journal somewhere no one's ever going to read. So, yeah. And, and again, now the sensible people are going, hey, it's not that bad, are also getting ignored, right? Because mm-hmm. now we want the doomers, uh, Julian Rotkers, uh, whoever else is saying this, um, because it gets clicks and then it all comes into the whole issue of the, the blessed algorithm of social media. Um, and yeah. Matt, do you have anything to add on this? Okay, so the F-16s are arriving soon. Um, I'd just like to remind everybody of that. Um, And thankfully, they're not 100% dependent on America. Um, So fingers crossed that will make a difference. Um, Then there's the the, the magical disappearance of the Russian Navy. I don't know if anyone else has noticed that. Um, They used so many ships for missile launches and goodness submarines and because of the drones and the various other things that are going on then that has that threat seems to have gone away the dry docks were destroyed the navy commanders were blown up um, with storm shadow missiles um i just wonder if we people are looking in the wrong place um it's obviously going to take a long time but Russia is just seems to be throwing people into particular towns for some reason, and I can't work out why. I'm not an expert, um, but there just seems to be thousands and thousands of Russians dying for specific small towns, and it makes logically it makes no sense to me at all. And so, if I'm looking at it, I'm going, well, Ukraine is just sitting there, and then these guys are running at the guns, and they don't really have to do very much. <laughs> and it's absolutely bizarre. If you look at the videos on on um, Telegram, uh, not just on Ukrainian channels, but Russian channels, there are Russian pensioners, people older than me, 
um, hiding under um, tarpaulins and walking towards machine guns. And it's it's just insane. And how they can justify this to their own population is how I, that's what I'm interested in is how the hell they can actually get away with doing this. It's, it's the most bizarre behavior. Um, I still don't understand Russia. I don't think I ever will. Well, you've got um, the right guests. <laughs> I know. It, um, well, I th- because I, th- I, read, I read a book about the Winter War mm. where there was um, um, some thin ice or something. And so the commanders just made the soldiers walk onto the ice. They either, and they just kept going until there were enough bodies to walk on um, to stop the people following on from drowning or getting shot. Um, so that uh, it looks like to me that we're approaching those, that level of lunacy. Um, well, but I I, there's always there's always something in there. I, I agree with you. It, it, it's hard to understand, isn't it? And it's hard to understand how you can treat life so cheaply. But for them, they, they have a numerical advantage. There's one of the only advantages that's still remaining. So they think if they can spread the Ukrainian force as thinly as possible along that line, right? They they think that it will help them in in their defense in the South. And I I don't suppose that that's entirely wrong. At the same time, the kind of tactics that, that they're using, a lot harder to, to justify, isn't it? Well, it's, 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 it's almost impossible to even understand, let alone justify it. But then, yeah, it's the, the tactics in Finland and the Second World War, it just matches this. And they, it's, I suppose, when you look at it in that context, then it's to be expected. But it doesn't make it any, <laughs> any less odd from a uh, yeah. Western point of view. You know? Well, yeah, I totally agree with that. I, I think that it stated how reformed uh, the Russian military was, um, it turns out, and I, I suppose we didn't know because it hadn't had, you know, a serious test uh, since 91, since since uh, independence, but it was massively overstated how, how reformed that military actually was. And compared to other areas of Russian society and other Russian institutions, it seems like, in fact, the military was one of the least reformed. And every year there would be a few articles saying that, you know, they did these reforms and they improved this and it became more modern and it became, you know, closer to what we would understand in the West as an effective fighting power. And it seems like a lot of that was um, cosmetic, basically. And exactly as you say, old habits die hard. And um, the, I suppose, sort of like the institutional culture is still much more similar to the Second World War than people had expected it to be. And and that was a little bit of a a shock. But um, I think it's dangerous to presume that they're they're not learning at all, right? And I think that 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 did play into people's heightened expectations for the counteroffensive because they're they're learning in the battlefield uh, every day. And they are trying, not always successfully, to alter what they do, right? And that was one of the things that I think we underestimated, perhaps being exposed to, you know, endless videos of people walking into machine gun fire and, and, and being droned and, and whatnot, you know? Uh, it's, it's the opposite of 
survivor bias, right? You, you only see the examples that don't work. And I think that did perhaps give people unrealistic expectations about how easy uh, it was going to be. Yeah, this all comes back to the, the issue of how we digest information and the internet and news outlets in how they present. And it's not necessarily malicious. It's just that, you know, we see the most exciting things and we see the biggest failures, the funniest stories, right? And this does c create a bit of a false narrative. I, again, not mostly within Ukraine because they're the ones who have the stories of their friends and loved ones on the, who are fighting. The, we, we, it's different for the um, people from afar who only are seeing like the funny videos or, or the or absurd videos of just Russia's failures, basically, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they did a lot of stuff to laugh at. I mean, pe people talk about um, them digging in the ground in Chernobyl, for example. Like, how could you ever justify, um, firstly, an officer asking or ordering soldiers to do that? But secondly, how can you justify soldiers obeying that order? Like, it's, it's insane, isn't it? Oh, I, I read not. I, this is one of the first really started getting when I found out about this. The what that happened was that the commanders and the soldiers believed the propaganda from the time that it wasn't a problem. Um, so oh. they didn't even know that it, that that was that it, it even happened or was a bad thing. Um, uh -huh. So. They were. They just went. We've got to take this power station, so we will. We'll do it. And it was. And there was um, stories of them stealing radioactive material and sending and trying to um, put it into bags and things like that. And um, some I, I, of the soldiers. Some of the soldiers went back in. In their bodies were so horrendously radioactive. It was. Um, I, I was actually have an anecdote from someone because um, I, I know some people who were who were Chernobyl guides and obviously there's a, there's a close connection between them and the, the people who work at the, 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 in the zone all the time. Right. And the stories I heard, like when the, when the guys turned up uh, and some of this has been verified in various news outlets, you know, the, the staff would go, Hey, that's radioactive. Do not know where they are. And they, some of them would, had no idea. They didn't know what radiation was. They didn't really understand it. They didn't, they, they generally, so yeah, maybe some of them believe propaganda, but I also think this, I don't know where the soldiers were from. I have a feeling some of them were from some of the more like deprived areas. Maybe just their education was poor. Maybe these soldiers were just very badly educated. But I think a lot of it was just complete ignorance about Chernobyl. It, and they just had no idea what this place was. You know, they they they, they didn't, for them, for them, it's like, oh, I can't see this radiation. So how can something invisible hurt me? You know, yeah, they were like asking the, they, they were taking equipment, as you said, and do you not know, like, you shouldn't touch metal things in the zone, you know, you, you should, you don't dig, and, you know, this, the staff were telling them, hey, what the fuck are you doing? Um, they just had no idea, from, from what I understand, and, yeah, this, this is sort of an anecdote from an anecdote, so obviously you can always take that with a pinch of salt, but I, I trust what I was told by these people. There was, there was stories in the British press about, about this, and there, I, there are images of um, people receiving their, their dead loved ones in lead-lined coffins because they were, the bodies were so radioactive. I also wonder what the, um, we've not heard anything about the 
the, the, the sort of death of the Russian Navy and the, and the Black Sea, either really very much. Um, apart from experts on my pin tweet, go and have a look. Um, they've, they've, they were the ones that have pointed out the big change that the, the, the LAT has made um, in terms of caliber launches and things like that. So, um, yeah, I'll be interested to see what you guys think. I mean, Black Sea Fleet was a big thing, and I, I'm guessing that that was why they wanted Crimea in the first place. Um, and you guys can probably tell us about the history of that and, and what sort of a what sort of damage that has done. Well, no, I, I think that it is incredibly interesting just um, that it was possible. And I think huge credit has got to go to the Ukrainian military for being able to basically basically destroy a navy without a navy, right? And, and massive credit has to go uh, to everyone involved in that. And you say, kind of, wow, that, that's, uh, in, first, it's impressive. Secondly, it's a reversal of asymmetrical warfare, the kind that people wouldn't have been able to have even imagined 10 or 15 years ago. So it's, it's really, really notable. And I, I think that's totally right. People haven't given that maybe the thought or, or the credit it, it deserves because we've, we've too rapidly shifted uh, to doom and gloom, right? But uh, I, I don't know how much difference it, it makes for Russian military power on, on the land. It's going to make some difference. I guess time is going to tell, really, uh, how much difference that is going to be. But um, it's a huge blow uh, to Russia's credibility, isn't it? It's a huge blow to their credibility. It's a huge blow to their status. And I, I personally don't believe they wanted Crimea for a, you know, for a strategic sort of launch pad or something. I think it was, again, a, an emotional thing that too many people felt, and too many people in the corridors of power, right, felt that Crimea was Russia. And, and it wasn't, you know, people might disagree on that. I did see lots of articles at the time when people were saying, you know, uh, world abroad and all this kind of stuff. And okay, okay, I, I can see there's something to it. It wasn't, it wasn't useless. But I think it was much more emotional uh, than they would ever admit, you know, and the fact that, um, you know, all all the leaders of the Soviet Union had datches there and they were holidaying there. That's where Gorbachev was during the coup, the uh, failed coup, obviously. It's got an emotional uh, place in in Soviet and Russian politics. And I think that more than any sort of strategic value influenced them. Uh, that being said, though, yeah, I think it, it, it's an incredible feat to defeat a Navy without having a Navy, isn't it? And as you said, there's going to be a difference in the kind of things that is possible to launch, for example. Whether or not that's incredibly important or just notable, we, we're going to have to find out um, through time, I suppose. I think also another success that... You... It's funny how remember when there was the first like drone attack on Moscow, it was like a big deal. Mm -hmm. And now it happens quite often, or they hit the uh the border rail with China and Russia. Mm -hmm. They they they're doing a lot of internal attacks, and now I see it because I follow these things, but I don't think the average person in the West knows these things. And again, these are quite successful. Okay, yeah, again, the impact of that is something that may remain to be seen, or we might not know until many years in the future. It might turn out this was crucial, or, or is it more an emotional thing? I, 
that's I don't want to make a grand statement. Uh, you know, <laughs> we've learned now not to do that. I think, but I, I, again, the, the, there are the, that's the thing when people say use words like "oh failure," I'm like, I, I don't know. There's still so many things that Ukraine is impressively doing and has been doing and continues to do. Uh, and yeah, I think that's when people get to do 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 Marie. Um, that's something that we need to bear in mind, I think, basically. Yeah, I, I just don't think you can underestimate the the number of people that Russia have piled into those tap those sort of small towns. It's that Edvyuk um, and stuff like this. Yeah, yeah and Bakhmut and people, places like that. And you, I don't think you can underestimate the 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 cost of that to them, but the amount of effort it's taken from Ukraine just to to hold that back, you know. And because I've, I've I've spoken to people, and you know the guys were were running out of bullets. There were so many people, Russians, just running towards them for no apparent reason. Uh, and I, I, it's sort of like the First World War type tactics, but without Ukraine really needing to to go on the offensive there because just of the the insanity of, of the Russians really. And I don't think we can comprehend it because as you say, we've been used to sort of the video game style war from the Americans, uh, you know, um, it, it's like going back in time, isn't it? Sometimes. It does feel like it, doesn't it? Yeah. Like a real throwback. <laughs> Yeah, like when you see the, the GoPro footage of like soldiers, like this is the war my great granddad fought, but just you know with GoPros sometimes it's just wild, uh -huh. like trench warfare and stuff. Speaking of going cool. back in time, uh, I I, I want to move on to the section I've decided to rename um, without any accountability. Uh, what used to be Coke in the week to Copium conspiracies and community notes because community notes is one feature of Musk's Twitter which I do enjoy a lot. Um, just, but you know, I just want to talk about the you know to have a lighter break before we get into the final section. Just the the maddest stuff that we see online, or the the, the worst takes, the, the absurdities, the conspiracies, and just the debunk lies that I would say isn't just necessarily about Russia, but I would I would expand to disinformation, the infosphere, and those sorts of things. Um, I will start with mine is just Seymour Hirsch is at it again, uh, because I see that Seymour Hirsch is an interesting figure because I think for a lot of our older listeners, you know, they probably have a lot higher uh, uh, respect for him as he was one of the main people to document what happened in my lie in the Viet Vietnam War. Uh, for younger people, they probably just know for weird takes uh, about Russia. You know, it's a bit like Robert De Niro how for many people he's a great actor for others he was the guy in terrible comedies and uh <laughs> so you know he, he just said this thing about how there's these back channel meetings about ukraine ready to surrender and it's Zelensky pushing on which i find really you know considering that he had that thing before where he used that russian term which no one would use in america about a waif thin underpants or whatever i do feel this credibility i, I I just, I just don't really know what has happened to him. I, I think that he might have good intentions. He's just easily duped, and people are just citing this as fact. And it's just, it comes back to this like unnamed sources, which 
by the way, people on all sides do that. And I think we need to stop doing that and question when people do that. It doesn't mean it's not true, of course, although I think in this case it is not true. But people, when it's there, when it aligns with their worldview, people go, yes, that sounds legitimate. And when it doesn't, people go, no, no, the unnamed source. Like, well, maybe we should always be a bit skeptical of that. But yeah, I don't know. Seymour Hirsch is just spreading a, a very weird narrative which has been picked up by mad people on Twitter, I suppose, and as if it was fact. Um, and it goes, and it's funny how the narrative has changed about Zelensky going from he's a coward to oh, he's this bloodthirsty warmonger. I, it just seems an incoherent narrative because I suppose it is. Uh, I didn't really. I personally, I, yeah, I yeah. personally do not read uh, Hirsch, so I can't really say very much. <laughs> you probably are better for it. We had this discussion, didn't we, when Ben Tallis was on, and I was just, I remember saying that it, that what I've learned and over the last couple of years has just made me reevaluate what I thought was the, the what was the, what I thought was reality about a number of the wars uh, between America and Russia, the proxy wars or whatever you want to call them. And I wonder about um, what Cy Hirsch's um, motivations were at the time now i think hirsch was a pretty respectable guy at the time i just think that he's probably he saw like some of the worst instances of american behavior abroad and has probably naturally assumed a inherent anti-west position um mm. and to to a fault right like many people on the you could say the anti-war so-called anti-war left who can't conceive that USA will be backing the right side because for them, USA is always bad. Um, and mm. I can imagine I, me... I call yeah. it, yeah, the, Chom the Chomsky syndrome, right? Um, during sort of a relatively young, impressionable age, you see an example of um, really reprehensible American conduct. And then you think that that means that in every subsequent um, situation, America will behave reprehensibly. And it's sort of like a, a one-size-fits-all answer for international relations for the rest of your life. As much as as much as uh, there is a form of logic there, I guess it's so it's just so ignorant, isn't it? Really, yeah. because you got you, you got to reflect on every development and sort of think critically and question yourself. Right? Uh, there seems to not be this sort of constant questioning of. Did I get that right? Did I get that wrong? What did I get right? What did I get wrong? How can I avoid making these kind of analytical mistakes in the future? And not, you know, these I see a lot of people fall into this category of people who just seem un, you know, unwilling. I don't even know if it's incapable. I think it's unwillingness mm. to to reflect at all. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, I also want to talk about the Gazas. The, the grifters go in Gaza, but we talked about that earlier. So, Matt, do you have anything to add um, about just the mad stuff you have seen on social media lately, or Judas, for that fact? I try to avoid the mad stuff. <laughs> Probably. Oh, I, oh I, I spend my entire time on Twitter looking. looking you have mad two stuff. minutes to do this in. Come on, that's <laughs> just not long enough. Fav favorite mad stuff. Um, there, I like the pressure um, because I, I want to get okay. onto the the meat. So, right. yeah, two minutes. Oh, you okay. go. Okay, I'll just I'll just say that I encountered my first winter is coming tweet. That's all I that's all I'm gonna say is <laughs> winter is coming, um, Europe is going to freeze, and that will cause um 
everything Ukraine will lose and just because people in Germany couldn't get the rate and I just wanted to say oh my god have you not followed anything at all that's happened um the gas came over from America Norway turned up the pipe Britain started and just go away it's not interesting anymore it's boring it's not true just shut up did they not learn anything for last year? I mean, it's like yeah, and pretty it, obvious when question. Everyone was completely unprepared and we still made it through. Mm -hmm. And now this time is, and it's, oh, are we, are we really going to go through this all over again? Um, yes. So please. <laughs> There's the answer. Please, if you're listening, um, Russian, Russian loonies, just know. Yeah, we have a big <laughs> Russian audience. We have a huge, we're huge in Russia, you know. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> they love NAFO affiliated podcasts. You know, it's, if they do, we must have one. We must have one guy who just hates us. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we must do. Um, and if you're listening, just think of something else, you know. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, if I can put in a request, then um, my, my favorite is um, sort of. LaRouche madness. So if you can give me some of that, that would be great. Okay. Um, you know, got... Jewish space, Jewish space lasers. Give me Go some on. of that. Yeah, give me the real be, crazy. Yeah. Be creative. Come on. Okay, so We've actually talked a bit about Russia already, so I think that would probably make sense to jump straight into that. Uh, I'm going to ask... Wait, is Matt here? I can't see him looking at my questions. No, yes, he is. Yep. Oh, yeah. yes, okay, yes, yes. right, so I appreciate we pushed for time, so I'm going to jump straight in. I think it would be worth talking most about... This is probably a big topic, and I'm going to ask, what do most people get wrong about Russia? Because you talked about this a bit about uh you know you said about crimea and you said about um just perception of russia and i think that is something that maybe a lot of us who haven't lived there or studied it a uh -huh. lot probably there's a lot of falsehood so you know, just what do most people uh -huh. wrong about it okay well i mean i think if we we uh, already spoke about um chomsky and kind of andy war left and, and and stuff like that and i think what what shocked me, uh, probably most, I think, was I expected a lot of right wing people to think that Russia was still communist. You know that that was something that didn't shock me, and 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 I was like, yeah, that makes sense. But the fact that a lot of left wing people thought that Russia was somehow um, in any way communist or socialist or anything like that really really shocked me. And I have to say that Russia is. I've never been to the US, but Russia is hands down the most capitalist free market place I've ever been in my life. And it's completely insane, this idea. It, it's just cutthroat capitalism, and it has been since the 90s. And this idea that it's got any kind of socialism or social policy is is bizarre, you know? Um, that That's the biggest thing I think people get wrong. Where that comes from, I don't know. Maybe they're... Maybe they're reading out-of-date books. I don't know. Maybe the book stopped in 1991. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. 
it, it's a very strange one. I, I think that's the that's the biggest sort of uh, misconception, really. A lot of things that people think are probably accurate or somewhat accurate um, ab about a lot of other things, about kind of um, cultural things, maybe, because, you know, the role of the Second World War, um, it does play an oversized, and, and even before the beginning of um, the war in 2022, or the, you know, the unofficial war in 2014, yeah, people paid attention then, but prior to that, it played a, a very, very uh, oversized role in the political culture of the country. So that is true, and lots of other things, you know, we talked about their tactics earlier. Yeah, sure, lots of these things are based uh, in some kind of fact, right? So I'm not sure that people are getting stuff entirely wrong. The, the thing that people get entirely wrong is probably uh, just how capitalist it is, uh, and I, I think that there is no real no real excuse for that maybe as you said it's because you know i experienced it firsthand so i know kind of what it looks like and that's something that you can't get from statistics on wikipedia right that's that's not something you can get like um i don't i don't know from some kind of third factual based source it, it's not really going to work but uh that, that's a big one and um and then i guess the other thing that i would say is that I think that people don't realize how conservative uh, it can be. So if we talk about the Soviet Union and we talk about the kind of the Lenin period, sure, it was revolutionary. We talk about the, the Stalinist period, sure, it was revolutionary. But after that, it was various shades of, of conservatism, really. And I think the fact that they're so conservative in a lot of ways is something that people don't really understand, again, because they think of it as some kind of I don't know, revolutionary socialist state, right? Which it is, absolutely isn't. And then going into the other side of that, because sometimes um, when people approach it from the other side, from, from the right, so to speak, from sort of Hinkle's latest position, or perhaps not latest because his latest position is sort of Hamas member, but his you know penultimate position, which was, um, I, I don't even really know, sort of... Um, neo-traditional conservative type, right? MAGA, communist, or whatever the hell he was saying. Those people kind of tried to paint Russia as the last bastion of white Christian, I, I don't even know, civilization, would they say? And that's insane as well, because it's a multi-ethnic society. Uh, true, uh, Russians are a majority, but uh, it's a very, very multi-ethnic, very, very multi-religious society. And, um, you know, it has insane rates of abortion, which they are currently in the process of outlawing, but it has insane rates of abortion and insane rates of divorce. And I sort of joked that everybody there is married at 20 and divorced at 30. <laughs> so so I, I think that, you know, from, from both sides, there are some factual elements that people get more or less correct. And then there's some stuff that I just think, where has that even come from? You know, that that um, sort of uh, I don't know what you want to what you want to call it. That's come from people like Alexander Dugin, I think, with his Great Awakening versus the Great Reset book and his fourth theory and all this sort of nonsense. And mm -hmm. if you have a look at it, it's almost an identical match for people like um, General Flynn and um, 
his bunch of um, grifters. Uh -huh. Um, yeah. So, so he he, he Dugan with some kind of weird sort of pastoral um, paradise with uh, traditional family roles and things like that. And there's been a, a massive amount of propaganda from him and various other Russian sort of oligarchs dri driving this message in America. And you, there's a big article from a, a website I found that just goes into this in enormous detail. Um, and you can see where it, where it's come from. Um, but he wants some kind of weird sort of year zero thing where people go back to being peasants and, and things like that, some kind of weird utopia. Because I think, um, yeah, Dugan, I think, I is think, more popular outside of Russia than actually within Russia, right? Yeah, yeah yes, definitely, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah and that's I think, a great point, yeah. No, I think, and, I think the Dugan stuff is a great point. But that comes from a, a longer history. Uh, the Narodniki, they, um, they believed in the 19th century that we had to go back. Uh, that, that's what they said. You know, they went out on the streets in cities in Russia, in the Russian Empire, and they said, we've got to go back. We've got to go back to the village. Living in a city is, is decaying our morality. And, and what we really need is to go and live in communes, in villages, and take care of each other. So there's this long sort of line of, of this return to nature sort of revolutionary conservatism, which also, I guess, Solzhenitsyn would fit into quite ne neatly, you know. And the thing is, um, before we go back to what Matt was saying about, about how people have consumed that in the West and, and how it's gone to them, people in Russia don't want it, you know. They mostly uh, look at the West as being ahead and they want to catch up. Right. And, and, and they're seeking to emulate kind of Western development. Meanwhile, you get a couple of weirdo gurus sort of providing bizarre statements that doesn't, you know, they just don't resonate with anyone. <laughs> and uh, they're the ones that somehow get promoted or projected on, onto us in the West. And maybe they're doing it. Uh, Matt probably knows more about th this than I do, but maybe they're doing it to damage us. I don't know. But it, it's not something that lands in Russia, you know, and and it's sort of bizarre. Interesting. Uh, so I, I was tracking. I, I was I, this article was. Um, I'll we'll put a link in there, but um, it goes down to people like um, Konstantin Malafiev and Jack Hanick, who set up um, Katihan and Sargrad TV and things like that, and the World Congress of Families. Um, and they they're the ones that gave Alex Jones his first his first um airtime and uh Andrew Korobiko, he appeared on Catehorn as well. Is that how you pronounce it? My yeah, accent is terrible. Um so he appeared there, and then you start getting people like Ionov with the um anti-globalization movement and things like that with the fake Uhuru. <laughs> Um, stuff in America and they, they, they it's like they're just basically they just throw crap at the wall and see what see what sticks and yeah on the, and on the right the this pastoral sort of going back to the 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 land has has resonated there and on and on the left it's been this sort of anti-imperialist um standing up for small oppressed nations and that's that's and it's the same people <laughs> and it's definitely to target us because oh. as you say russians russians don't want that you know 
you know, what's the, what's the thing that they've been stealing from Ukraine? It's Western consumer products, you know? It does my head in, because you, you, you go, but Russia's not communist to the people with the hammer yeah, and sickle yeah. in their bio. And, on, and yeah. it's, it's infuriating, but that's, that's where it's come from. It's this sort of dooginess, and if it goes back even further, then, then I, I can definitely trace most of the propaganda from the left and sort of like the far right towards on that. I mean, General Flynn's tour even matched Dugin's book title, oh. The Great Awakening versus The Great Reset, you know, and that's, that's anti-Semitic at its core anyway, The Great Reset, which is this sort of um, WEF Davos lie, isn't it, where Jewish people run the world um, oh. and make us have vaccines and stuff like that. It's, it, it, Ugh, it's just awful it's just awful um but that's where it's come from um, um yeah but it doesn't make it any more logical or easy to understand you know no um i think that you i'm gonna ask you now because you know you're, you're most of your expertise here this is mostly in you know transitions and i think because you mentioned about how russia is actually very capitalist so i think that this is something you know what is crucial to understand about the conditions the transitions away from communism maybe in russia and how the different situations affected let's say i think we should mostly just talk about ukraine and russia in this situation because mm -hmm. that's what we've been talking about today yeah yeah well i i think that um obviously transitions if you're interested in transitions boy have i got a dissertation for you no <laughs> the thing is i focus on on democratic transitions but you know that there were actually two types of transition happening at the same time right there was um one in the political system and one in the economic system some people added to that because there was also uh one in kind of civil society and and state institutions as well and then sort of said it's a bit more complicated than just saying democracy and capitalism right so they sort of expanded that but the interesting thing is that Russia was very successful in its transition to capitalism. It's pretty much as capitalist as you could possibly ever be. On the other hand, I've heard that democratically it didn't do so well, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> so the, the question is why? And, and, you know, you get into a lot of stuff where it, it, it becomes unmeasurable and it, and it gets very difficult and we talk about political culture and we talk about needing a strong man and, 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 and there is certain issues which are perhaps overstated, but even if they're not overstated, they're not really measurable and they're not really something we can falsify, right? So if they're not, and they're not measurable, I tend to think that we should, we should look elsewhere. And what, what we see actually is that, you know, political science had studied what kind of systems are efficient and produce good quality uh, legislation and stable political systems and peaceful transitions of power. And the answer is they should be, uh, they shouldn't be executive based, right? They should be parliamentary based, whatever kind of parliament system you have there. And, um, they should uh, they should be consensus based, not uh, not majoritarian based. So essentially, you shouldn't have a president or or even a prime minister who can dictate to the rest of the the political order, and you shouldn't have a system of elections which produces massive results for one party and they can cram through 
very, very poor quality legislation. And that kind of was known in the 90s. And it was known in the 80s as well. And it's something that, you know, Britain, for example, does suffer with just, you know, for example, because uh, we don't we don't necessarily have an executive system, but we do have a majoritarian system where you can just force through any any policy. And when they were transitioning these uh, countries, particularly Russia, the, the Western advisors were very scared that as soon as they introduced any kind of, because they knew that it was going to lead to somewhere between six months and two years of uh, economic well, decline and turmoil, sorry, decline and turmoil, and it's not going to go down well with the electorate. So they were very concerned that the very first election that happened after uh, they introduced these policies, the communists would, they'd just come back, yeah, they'd just win. So they designed systems to try and prevent that. They designed systems that did absolutely what we know they should not. So they were executive-based, uh, and they tended to be more majoritarian. And eventually, after 1993 in Russia, for example, they became super executive. And these changes, they're really hard, hard to reverse, you know? And I'm talking about Western advisors because uh, they were heavily involved in these transitions, and they already knew. They, they, they knew this, and they had, a, they had a purpose behind it. That's one side of it. And then the other side of it, is what the Russians themselves were thinking, or the Ukrainians, or the Poles, or whatever, and they were thinking that uh, God, this this is going to be unpopular, basically. So we have to try and make sure that it's irreversible. So as quickly as possible, um, as sort of brutally uh, done as it needs to be done, just so that it's irreversible. And, you know, various countries took various approaches to communist parties, banning them, banning the hammer and sickle, whatever. But, you know, left-wing parties in general, let's say, that might have reversed these changes. And what we see when, and I don't really think left and, and right-wing is a, is a fantastic paradigm in general, but it's certainly not a fantastic paradigm for Eastern Europe, for, for post-communist Europe. It, it, it doesn't really fit. But when these sort of quote-unquote left-wing parties did eventually win power, and sometimes it was the next election. They didn't undo the reforms. So this was uh, something that people were afraid of they needn't have been afraid of. It happened uh, in Bulgaria, for example, didn't go back. Poland didn't go back. Uh, but in, uh, in Russia, they were very afraid of this, and, and perhaps because of you know Russian military power or perceived Russian military power, uh, they were very, very eager to prevent that. And so First of all, there was a huge amount of support for Gorbachev. And then when he lost popularity, well, several years after he lost popularity, there was full weight behind Yeltsin. And, you know, the changes that Yeltsin made are, are really what Putin's taken advantage of now. And it produced a system that we knew at the time was, was going to produce bad, bad, very, very suboptimal uh, legislative outcomes. And we knew that. So to an extent, none of this is really a surprise. Perhaps the violent nature of it, perhaps the extent of it, that's a surprise. Sure. Yeah, I can, I can see that. But in terms of the transition, it, it was pretty much uh, less than ideal from the beginning. And, and it, people were aware of that. Um, exactly why 
exactly why capitalism took hold so hard in Russia. It might have been an overcorrection. It might have simply been that there was no choice because essentially what happened is they just removed all uh, state support and now you're on your own. So if you don't go full capitalist, you, you know, you're going to be losing out. And we see certain breakdowns going back to what people sort of misconceptions people have about Russia. We see certain breakdowns, the rate of uh, drug addiction, the rate of um, HIV infection uh, connected to the drug addiction and whatnot. Certain signs that indicate, you know, this is not a society that's taking care of its most vulnerable, right? And these come back down to changes made in, in the early 90s, unfortunately. And it sounds a bit fatalistic to put it like that. Of course, there were various chances to get off that, um, to get off that track, to get off that trajectory. But ultimately, the trajectory that Russia was put on in the early 90s ultimately wasn't, wasn't ever going to produce fantastic results, unfortunately. So how can we see such different results in other, uh, like, let's say, more successful, uh, more democratic former Soviet countries? Well, that, that's a great question. That's, that's a question I spend a lot of my time thinking about. And if we look at, for example, um, the most successful, which I would probably include Poland, uh, where I currently live, I would include that in the examples. Well, they had a different situation. You know, they had um, a politically diverse uh, elite at the time of breakdown. And as soon as, because people talk about solidarity a lot, solidarity, solidarity, 10 million members, solidarity. But they were just all, you know, in one union. They didn't necessarily share the same political beliefs apart from whatever they were campaigning against at that time. So as soon as it um, collapsed, it did uh, produce parties, for example. And, and Russia did have parties at the beginning in the 90s. But guess what? If you've got a super executive uh, um, system, parties don't matter anymore. Who's president matters. Whereas in Poland, that wasn't the case. And of course, uh, there is the danger of sort of letting Russians off the hook, right? And sort of saying, oh, this happened them and the political situation is a result of how it was designed. There are plenty of chances to, to alter that as well. But uh, what happened was, you know, the, the, the paths to expressing certain dissatisfaction were deliberately cut off. So just so that they could complete these transitions. And after the transition, we'll go back. Don't worry, after the transition. So that was sort of the idea for a long time. And obviously, they never went back. That's not how it works. Um, but yeah, we see that some countries were more parliamentary than presidential. And they are probably countries that were less worried, less concerned about the return of of communists to, to parliament generally. Didn't always produce a system with no corruption, for example, because Slovakia had a lot of corruption. Um, but yeah, we, we can look at the, the design of institutions, who, who took power in lots of these countries, the majority of the post-Soviet countries, you know, the previous elite maintained power. That was true in Ukraine, it was true in Russia, it's true in most of Central Asia. And you go, um, oh, right, well, the systems were not fantastically designed. The institutions were not fantastically designed. And then people who were, you know, demonstrably anti-democracy continue to hold power. Well, perhaps we should be surprised it wasn't worse in some cases, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Matt, do you have any questions for Julius, actually, like considering everything he's just said and his 
knowledge, let's say, on like transitions, Russia, things like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems Russia's never really, I don't know if this is true, but from an outsider, Russia's never really come to terms with the fact that it, it, it doesn't run the USSR anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah. Does it, I mean, it, it um, so, I mean, if you look at um, some people in Britain, they still think that we are we are some sort of weird sort of giant empire when uh -huh. an island just off the top of um, France and, and Holland. Um, and I, I wonder if there's a there's a possibly a bit of that that they haven't come to terms with um, what happened in the 90s. I mean, it it was from what looking at it from the outside it was it was pretty horrific uh, you know people really really were struggling um uh -huh. and rather than okay we need we need to fix this they it just seemed to be okay that that didn't work so putin came along and just started a cult of we were great at the during the the great war you know the 41 uh -huh. to 45 and everyone's just gone yeah okay let, let's do that is is that right they've just sort of gone oh that sort of didn't really work or yeah well I, I think I think what's really interesting and and I'm glad you brought it up uh, because it's something that I say very often I forgot to say today is that the sort of mentality and and political culture and how they view themselves and their position in the world is shockingly close to Britain like it really did shock me because what we have is two former empires, as you say, who don't really understand their role in the world. And when we look at people uh, in Britain who are alive today, they were born at a time when huge amounts of the world were under British control, uh, when Britain was the major power. And now they're living in a time when, you know, at the point of the Brexit vote, for example, we were not the major power in Europe. So you go... You know that's a hell of a change for anybody to understand, to to process, to comprehend, right? And the same thing in Russia. You have people alive today who were, you know, born at a time when they were the second most powerful nation in the world. When, rightly or wrongly, whether you'd want that or not, people were kind of afraid or careful about them, and they cared what they thought. And and the reality, as, as you sort of said, is that people suffered in their personal lives through the 90s. Absolutely. And, and, and the amount of people, you know, who died earlier than they would have died if the transition hadn't, hadn't been like that because of their lost life expectancy, because of the quality of food, of work, of, of uh, issues with um, medicine and, and stuff like that. That is a, a human tragedy of a great scale, which Britain fortunately didn't have to experience. But politically, they, they would not care what they thought. And for example, the expansion of NATO, they were against it, uh, unless they could be included, of course. And then when they were asking to be included, they were asking to be included kind of as an equal partner. And the US was like, what? Who, who, who are you to ask that, essentially? And, and they, they were fobbed off. So they couldn't stop uh, countries which had been in their orbit joining NATO, right? And they couldn't join NATO as an equal partner, and they lost their position in the world. So that combined with um, this personal tragedy, yeah, it produces uh, a political culture where people uh, feel much like they do in Britain that we used to we used to matter. Why don't we matter, right? And 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 that that single kind of view can perhaps explain most of their 
behavior better than anything else if we're talking about politically on, on the global stage yeah um that's why they valued what they did in syria because they felt that um they were opposed to what the western countries did in in libya and as they saw it in other arab nations like egypt and they saw syria as a success because it showed that they were able to prevent the us from doing whatever it wanted and if we talk about Crimea, yes, they view Crimea as, as theirs, as the meme goes, right? And it was important for the Black Sea fleet, but it was like showing that they could prevent something happening next door, which they couldn't, actually, because this societal change after Maidan continued, but they felt like they could do something. And a lot of, a lot of their sort of assertive actions, ironically, come from uh, this place of insecurity uh not necessarily in the sense of you know militarily but but emotional insecurity in that we used to be somebody how can they come next door and do this you know and uh, that is really very very important for understanding how and why uh the the russian government behaves in the way that it does behave and i think it's something that can't can't be overstated on the topic of looking backwards there's um there's a really interesting, uh, well, series of papers, actually, uh, by this woman called Professor Malanova, and she talked about memory politics, basically. Memory politics in the Yeltsin period was all about new start, new start, looking forward, new start, breaking with history. And Putin gradually, you know, started to talk about a thousand years of Russia. A thousand years of Russia is... Well, it's not not really very historically accurate anyway, but, you know, we see this shift, right, in rhetoric. So there's a, there's a lot of things coming together at the same time, but like this emotional insecurity of their position in the world combined with this return to history. Again, you could see that the results wouldn't be good. When you look at what's happened in, in the countries around there, I mean, you had um, uh, the... The Solidarity Union in in Poland, um, and various other sort of I wouldn't, I wouldn't call them resistance, but you know they that that sort of movement grew up in each of those countries, and there wasn't there was nothing really was there in in Russia that you can liken to liken those to I don't know Is, was there anyone was there was there people sort of actively trying to bring about change at, at, the, at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a great question, actually. Yeah, I, I think that you're, you're spot on. There's no, there's no solidarity, right? Solidarity had a huge membership and a huge appeal. And the Catholic Church had uh, massive say, even in communist Poland. So mm. there's probably not institutions on that scale in Russia. But uh, at the same time, you know, there was a fairly significant dissident movement, right? Mm. And it And that came from the stereotype is that it comes from these sort of tortured uh, artists, so to speak, right? The Solzhenitsyns, uh, who uh, was was quite viciously mocked by other emigre writers who got deported, kind of ironically, like Voinovich, for example. So um, they weren't always universally popular, but that's what springs to people's minds, right? Um, but then also there were people who came from sort of, you know, within the system and, and Gorbachev obviously was a big reformer and he came from within the system. He's he's the other symbol that people probably think of. Yeltsin came from within the system, right? Um, 
he he was a reformer of sorts and, and and he came from within the system and politically it did happen and obviously perhaps the the biggest liberal in in that early 90s period would have been um Sakharov and he was a scientist right so he came from within within the system of 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 sorts and then outside of the system you know there there were people who were campaigning for environmental things that was a big movement uh the state of baikal which is uh you know a global treasure not even a national treasure and what they were doing there was terrible and 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 there were those kind of campaigns and then um other campaigns to kind of uh fix certain things so a lot of what solidarity did wasn't campaigning against um communism they were saying like don't export so much meat because they wanted more meat to stay in the polish market uh they wanted to change their you know minimum wage or whatever and and they were big issues that solidarity campaigned on and then in russia you had uh, the miners for example uh well at the end of the soviet union they were also campaigning across the border in ukraine right in in um in one in the donbass ironically so there there were a lot of things going on but probably the difference is i guess there wasn't one structure that could kind of combine them all right and that, that that's maybe what solidarity did what solidarity did was combine them all just until they got over the line of the first elections they got rid of the communist government and then they pretty much just disbanded immediately so the the lack of unity isn't necessarily the biggest issue the biggest issue is that um they tried very hard to make sure that the parliament in Russia wasn't deciding things you know that was what they were fighting against constantly and there was all the backdoor dealings and and what not going on there as well um but you know if if we look at the coup for example right the failed coup gorbachev goes on a holiday and he's he's sitting around in crimea and then they come to him and they say well your you know your lines have been cut sign this document saying that you you hand over power and he said no and then the 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 image of of Yeltsin on the tank and and Yeltsin at the white house and he was surrounded by people who were mostly veterans of the Afghanistan war who were committed reformers committed liberals and they were re- willing to risk their lives put their lives on the line uh to ensure that Russia did not go back to a regressive conservative dictatorship under a hammer and sickle which is essentially what the alternative was offering however right they called a national strike they called a general strike and a lot of people still went to work and we can say well for russians you know they're not serious about it but at the same time if we look next door at ukraine which was still part of the soviet union then they they basically had nothing everybody just ignored it and continued so it, it, there's a danger in reading too much into it you know that that that's what i would say that there were movements which could have become parties which could have become competitive which could have become a multi-party democracy could have become uh maybe not the most vibrant example but it could have become something like that and it didn't happen and that's a great shame for all of us right because if that had happened i don't think we'd be sitting in the position that we're sitting in today right you wouldn't democracies tend not to go to war with each other right T- tends not to i would say I think your listeners are more interested in what's happening now 
than me talking about 1993 Russia for like two hours. So. <laughs> okay. so yeah, basically, obviously we see issues with the border with Poland, but we also see them having a new government and also issues in Slovakia, neighboring Slovakia and the border. Just, yeah, it's like five minutes. Let's try to wrap this up yeah. and talk about what the hell's going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So well, Poland is also a bit of an enigma. So very quickly, they, they had elections and... The government in Poland was essentially combining uh, a sort of form of, let's say, strong social policy. So economically, that might appear left wing for a lot of people uh, with extremely conservative and religious views, which might seem quite right wing for a lot of people. So it was essentially combining what should have been the two most popular facets of, of Polish society, looking after the elderly and the poor and the needy, which, you know, religion tells us we should, and, uh, you know, other various elements of, of, of conservative religious uh, policy, which might not be so popular, things like banning abortion, and, um, you know, try, trying to encourage women to have a lot of babies and, and, and things like that. So it looked like it should have been very popular, and they also controlled most of the media one way or another, and it seemed like we were heading down uh, Viktor Orban path in Hungary, who started it, you know, uh, six, seven years earlier than Piss did. So it looked like it was going that way. And then they lost this election. They didn't win more than 50%. And this is the advantage of, um, of consensus-based politics, right? We look around, we look at the parliament, they don't have a majority, they can't just force through deeply, deeply unpopular policy anymore. However, they are dragging their feet about forming the new government because they wanted to give Piss every chance to try and get one of the opposition, there are three working together, one of these opposition parties to join with them. Uh, and so Piss could continue. They can't. And probably by the time this is broadcast, I suppose, um, Piss will probably be out and, and the coalition of these three will be in. But unrelated to that, I think, is the, the issue at the border. And I always think the point of people uh, who are supposedly experts is, is not to say this is good or this is bad, but to provide a little bit of understanding, like, why might that be happening? Yeah. And the eastward um, growth of the European Union was, at the time, very, very controversial, right? People forget about that because it was such a big success. But lots of countries were worried about being flooded with Polish uh, Romanian whatever workers, they put uh, limits on when they could migrate, what they could migrate for, there were transition periods. Uh, Britain was one of the few countries who didn't do that, which is why we ended up with so many Eastern European migrants, actually. Germany, for example, didn't extend the same. So we forget that turbulence. Now we're looking at another expansion, essentially, because, you know, the idea is that Ukraine will join the European Union. And a lot of a lot of things have already been lifted. But there are two key elements of, of integration, really, which is that you have one market and you have one rule, right, for, for everyone. So at the moment, unfortunately, we don't fully have one market. And equally, unfortunately, we don't have one set of rules. Polish and um, Slovakian truckers, for example, but also farmers earlier on, felt like it's not, it's just not fair to compete with a country that's following a different set of rules. Yeah, basically they are not playing on a level playing field. 
And we can talk about the timing and, and, and it benefiting Russia and it, it, it being very naive and, and the wrong thing. To, I think all of that is true. But, but at the heart of the matter is the issue that, you know, the European Union is just not really doing it the right way with, with Ukraine, which would be to say, here's accelerated membership. Here's, you know, we're going to remove the border, which I think would have been the right thing to do. And you're going to have to play by the same rules as us as much as is possible, right? And that would have relieved a lot of this pressure because a lot of the pressure is coming from, for example, Polish truckers going into Ukraine and then not being able to get out for days at a time as well. So if the border had been eased or removed to a certain extent, this issue wouldn't be happening. If we could point and say, look, they're, they're competing on a level playing field with you. It's the same set of rules that they're obeying. That would be removed to an extent as well. So it's not, it's not a wise time to be doing this, and it's not a wise thing to be doing, but the core issue comes from this ad hoc approach to Ukraine, which, well, to be honest, we've seen since 1991 and isn't really acceptable, wasn't acceptable then, it's not acceptable now. And in a crisis, it's incredibly, incredibly unacceptable. And the fact that some individual truckers or farmers have been aggrieved by this stuff, yeah, I, I can see where they're coming from. Why wouldn't you be aggrieved? You're not Brussels. You haven't messed this up, right? And they're, and they're sort of being asked to, to deal with the result of it. And, and that isn't fair either. Yeah, right. So basically, you're saying that um, it's, it's a result of bad policy. And even if it's, you can say, like, look, it's not really fair to be doing this on Ukraine right now when you're in an existential conflict, you have to also look at the big picture and go like, well, this is why at least it's happened and how we can solve it, right? Like, we have to look at the EU policy and institutional support. Absolutely. What a lot of people are doing is they're pointing at the trucker on the border and they're saying this guy is helping Russia. And I'm not saying they're totally wrong. I'm saying, wait a minute, we have elected officials who are supposed to be dealing with this issue and, and should have been dealing with it for decades. Just the fact that one guy is, is sort of annoyed by this, and I know that there are other things going on, it, it's incorrect because it's not seeing the big picture. And the big picture is we should have done better by Ukraine. And we should have done better by Ukraine earlier. And it's not too late to resolve this issue tomorrow if there was the political will, right? The fact that there is not the political will, that's the issue, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, I guess we need to sort of wrap up now, right? Uh, yeah, that, that's that's pretty much it. Well, it, it was it was great to talk to you guys. I thought very interesting, great questions. I could have talked forever. I, I, I know, I could have also <laughs> talked forever. I thought we all could have talked forever. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, you'll notice I managed. I still managed to get my um my favorite topic of Larouche lunatics. <laughs> yeah and, yeah uh, just squeeze it in well they, they were great questions as well so i really i really enjoyed the questions yeah. really enjoyed what we talked about yeah thank you for being here yeah. we're, we're glad to be back and we'll hopefully have more soon uh, yeah definitely goodbye okay. everyone goodbye thank everyone you. thank you cheers bye bye, bye. okay cheers bye bye